So let me start with uh, telling you about a conversation I had with my friend John a couple of years ago. Uh, the phone rang and I picked it up and we, you know, after a little chit-chat, John said, a little out of the blue, he said, have you heard? It might happen. You see, I didn't have to ask him what it was. I could tell by the excitement and fervor in his voice exactly what he was talking about. The it that might happen is a Led Zeppelin reunion tour. <laughs> so I said, seriously? When? And John said, I don't know. I don't know when. It all depends on Robert. And of course, I knew what he meant was Robert Plant, the lead singer, right? And I said, he's the holdup? I said, what's the deal? John said, well, all the others are in, but, but he won't commit. He's got some project with Alison Krauss or something. And I said, are you kidding me? He's not going to do a tour to do a bluegrass album? And John said, I know, but if he's in, we have to go. And I said, listen, John, I, you know, I give my right arm to go to this concert, but do you know how expensive those tickets are going to be? He said, dude, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. If it happens, you're going. <laughs> I said, okay, I know, I, all right. All right, I, I, don't know, I don't know how I'll do it, but I'll get the money somehow. I'll, I'll, we'll go if it happens. So I, I got up the phone, and I, the first thing I did was I turned to Christine, and I said, honey, I said, Led Zeppelin might be going on a reunion tour, and if that happens, even if we have to get a second mortgage, <laughs> I have to go. And she just kind of looked at me, partly because that was an empty threat since we still lived in an apartment and we didn't have a first mortgage, but <laughs> also because, I mean, she was just amazed that I would be willing to pay such a price to go see a bunch of, you know, older rock stars from the 70s play a concert, right? But my question to you is, is, is what are your Led Zeppelin reunion tour tickets? You know, maybe for you it's tickets to see, the, see Washington play in the Super Bowl, or maybe it's to get the latest iPhone, or maybe that job promotion you've always you know, desperately wanted. Or if you're a student, maybe it's that 4.0 GPA. You know, what, are your, what are your tour tickets? Let me switch gears. Maybe it's more about you would pay any price to protect your reputation or to get the love and acceptance uh, from others. Whatever it may be, you see, our text this morning comes from Matthew 13, verses 44 to 58, if you want to turn there now. And Jesus begins by talking about the immeasurable worth of the kingdom and how it's worth paying any price to be in it. And then everything that comes after that this morning in the passage builds upon that foundation. So let me ask a few questions of us before we get started. Again, what is the one thing that you long to have or to do or to be? And what are you willing to do to get it? Do you think it's really going to be worth it? Or, or maybe for some of you the question should be, what's the most valuable thing you have now? And what did you have to sacrifice in order to get it? And was it worth it? And we're going to do things a little differently this morning. Usually we read the entire passage before we get started. I'm going to try something a little different. I'm, I'm going to read as we kind of go along, just so you know that. But before we jump into it, why don't we pray, okay? Please pray with me. Father, 
I thank you for this time and this privilege, and I pray that even now you would be equipping me to preach faithfully from your word. Let nothing come out of my mouth that contradicts your scriptures. And I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, that you would soften our hearts to hear your truth and to be changed by it, Father. And Father, help us to to hear your word preached and to give it the reverent attention that it deserves. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first point we're going to look at this morning is we need to recognize the immeasurable worth of the kingdom. And we're going to look at verses 44 through 45 in Matthew 13. Here's the word of God for us this morning. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And Jesus continues, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. Now, I don't know about you, but the first question that I have when I look at you know, this, these two verses is, why is there a treasure hidden in a field anyway, right? Well, I mean, this is ancient Israel. They don't have banks, and they don't have bank deposit boxes, so when people wanted to protect their valuables, they put them in a clay pot and they'd bury them in the ground. You know, let's say you were going on a long journey somewhere, or maybe this was a time of there are wars going on, and you want to protect your valuables from looting soldiers, right? So you would go ahead and bury them. But if for some reason you didn't come back from your journey, or for some other reason you never went and got back, you know, the uh, valuables that you had buried, then the treasure would remain there until, by some off chance, someone might happen to stumble upon it. Well, another question I have is, you know, this, this guy finds the treasure, but then he covers it back up, and he goes through all this hassle to sell everything and buy the field. Why? Well, because there's a good possibility that this guy is a hired hand, right? A worker of some kind. And by rabbinic law... If you were working and you were to discover something like a treasure in the field of the person who you were working for and you lifted it up out of the ground, guess what? You were considered to be an agent of your employer and the treasure would be his. So the safest thing to do in this situation is just leave it where it is, cover it back up, and go ahead and buy the field and then there'll be no questions about the legal ownership of, of the treasure, and, and your treasure is secure, okay? But putting that legal commentary aside for the moment, let's not miss Jesus' main point, and that is that membership in the kingdom is worth all we possess. I mean, consider the man's response when he finds the treasure, right? He's filled with joy, and he sells everything he has to buy that field, and I can imagine that his family and friends probably think he's nuts, right? Because he just impulsively goes and sells everything and buys this field. But the man knows the treasure that he's found. And he knows that it's worth doing whatever he has to do to get it. And the second parable, the, what's called the pearl of great price or value, kind of drives the same point home to us this morning. You know, unlike the first man, the man in the second parable is a wealthy merchant. And he doesn't just stumble across this treasure, he actually knows what he wants, and he's searching for it, right? And when he finds the pearl he's searching for, he takes decisive action, and he sells everything off, and he buys it. 
You see, Jesus is once again saying that no price is too great to gain the kingdom because the kingdom is of immeasurable worth. Why? I mean, what makes the kingdom so valuable? Well, I mean, here are just a few things to think about, okay? And first of all, kingdom membership means that all of our sins have been forgiven. When we deserve punishment and wrath, all our sins are forgiven. Kingdom membership means adoption, our adoption as sons and daughters of God. It means our movement from being children of wrath to being able to call on the God of the universe as Abba, Father. Think about that for a second. Kingdom membership means inheriting eternal life when for every single one of us in this room, eternal punishment was what we rightly deserved. But, most of all, kingdom membership means knowing the king, you see. And this is ultimately what makes the kingdom such an invaluable treasure. I mean, what, what makes heaven heaven? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, why do we long for heaven? I mean, part of it is, is because we look forward to, to being reunited with those who are in Christ who have died before us, and we look forward to seeing them again. And part of it certainly is that we know that in heaven there'll be no more suffering, and no more pain, and no more sin, and no more tears. But what makes heaven heaven is the eternal presence of Jesus Christ. And we will get to see him as he is, face to face, and enjoy unfettered relationship and intimacy with him. And we will spend an eternity trying to plumb the depths of his greatness. I mean, ultimately, the immeasurable worth of the kingdom is founded upon the priceless privilege of knowing the king. I mean, we've already had this first come up in the, in the course of the worship this morning, but rem remember Paul's exclamation in Philippians 3. After he recounts his religious resume and his religious pedigree, he says this in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And let me just tell you between friends, that word is a lot stronger than rubbish in the Greek, okay? We'll just leave it at that. But I count it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. My brothers and sisters, do you still have that kind of wonder about the immeasurable worth of the kingdom? Are you still overwhelmed by the joy of the privilege of knowing Jesus the King? I mean, I think, I think if we were honest, most of us would admit that maybe that joy and wonder just, quite, just aren't quite as vibrant as they used to be, right? That maybe that hidden treasure we found so long ago has lost just a little bit of its sparkle in our eyes, right? That maybe that prized pearl that we used to just for the joy of it, used to just take out of its box and hold it up and just behold its beauty, that maybe that pearl 
that we used to enjoy so much is, is just in its, in its box, and maybe there's just a little dust starting to gather on the box, right? Can anybody identify with that? I pray the Lord would stir our hearts. I pray he would stir my heart and your heart, and that his kindness would once again lead us to repentance, and that he would inflame our hearts by the Holy Spirit so that we would once again passionately pursue our first love, King Jesus. Now, I've been speaking to Christians, but maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're like the man in the field and you've kind of stumbled across the kingdom treasure. I just want to ask you, do you realize, you know, so to speak, the chances of an, of an Israelite stumbling across a treasure like that? It's probably like one in a thousand lifetimes. I mean, are you going to pass up this opportunity to buy the kingdom field and risk forgetting where the treasure was in the first place and maybe never stumbling across it again? Or maybe you're more like the merchant who's been searching around for something, right? Maybe you've been checking out different philosophies or studying world religions. And I just want to say to you, do you realize that all the time while you're sifting through costume jewelry, the most magnificent, precious pearl is staring you right in the face? I don't know, I don't know what it is. I mean, no, whatever you're not willing to sell, to possess the kingdom. Maybe, maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's some behavior you don't want to give up. Maybe it's your need for control or the false security of wealth or the deceptive contentment of success. Maybe it's just simply you have fear of what others are going to think if you become a Christian. Whatever it is, this I can tell you with all certainty, it is no match for the immeasurable worth of the kingdom. So if this is you, and you want to know more about following Jesus, please come talk to me or someone here about it after the service. Because as the next parable tells us, the last thing that you want to do this morning is to walk away having underestimated the worth of the king and his kingdom. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Next point is we need to remember the final separation of the kingdom. And this comes from verses 47 through 50, if you'll read with me. It's called the parable of the net. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now there are two ways that fishermen could use these huge nets the fish, right? Jesus, again, is using another common Im image common to people's understanding at that time. You either tied one end of the big net, right, to something on the shore, and then with your boat, you kind of circled around, and you got, grabbed all the fish, and you pulled them in. Or if you had two boats, you just tied the net between the two boats, and then you would come and get the fish as you came to shore. And then once your net was full, like Jesus is saying, you would drag the net on shore, and you'd sit down, and you would kind of go through the fish and sort them, Right? And whether they were good or bad, you know, good fish were probably ones that were one 
large enough to be eaten, and two, that were, according to the law, they were ceremonially clean to eat, right? Because the Jews couldn't eat all kinds of fish. They were very specific you know, stipulations about what fish you could and could not eat. So that's how they determined the good fish from the bad fish. And Jesus uses this image, imagery to tell us about what's going to happen at the end of the age. And he says that the angels will come and they'll separate the evil from the righteous and the evil will be thrown in the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A disturbing image. And this application is either a source of hope and joy or a source of serious concern for you. And it all depends on what kind of fish you are. Let me, let me tell you more about that, what I mean by that. See, if you're one of the righteous, it's a source of joy, not because we rejoice that other people will suffer eternally. No. I mean, that should break our hearts and fill us with the deepest sorrow. That's not why we rejoice over this parable. The righteous rejoice because of the hope that it represents the hope that one day the kingdom will be fully realized. That even though now we live in this corrupted world where sin and injustice reign, that one day Jesus' kingdom will be fully here and all things will be made right. And how we long for that day. So there's the joy of that hope, that future hope. But there's also for the righteous the joy of gratitude because we know that if left to ourselves, we would all be bad fish. We'd all be headed for the fiery furnace of God's perfect justice. But we also know that we have been spared only because of the grace and mercy that is found in Jesus. You see that the righteous are not righteous by their own doing. It's not because they've lived a great life or they've been good people. They're simply evil people who have admitted their sins and have thrown themselves on the mercy of God and believe that because they trust and believe in Jesus, that, they, that his righteousness has become theirs. That's what makes them righteous. And that's why this parable fills those who are Christians with joy and hope and gratitude because they look forward to the kingdom which is coming, but they also remember and know that they're kingdom citizens by receiving what they would never, ever be able to earn or deserve. See, but if you're not trusting and following in Jesus then this parable should cause you serious concern because you're not in the kingdom. Though you may swim now in the same sea with all the righteous fish, and, and you may even think that you're maybe even be more righteous than some of those fish, right? A time is coming when the angels will come and you will be eternally separated from them. See, here's, here's the thing. If you choose not to recognize the immeasurable worth of the kingdom and the and the invaluable treasure of knowing the king, if you view them as worthless in this life, then Jesus tells us that you will be cast aside as worthless in the next. You know, regardless of our culture and what it says, 
hell is not a joke. And it's not some medieval superstition. It's a real place. So I pray that you, if this is you, that you would hear and heed the words of Jesus from from His mouth that unless you turn to Him, the wicked will be cast into the fiery furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because there is no hope for those who reject the King and His kingdom. So if this describes you, I, I beg you to flee to Jesus for rescue. Throw yourself upon the grace and mercy that only flows from the cross. You see, Jesus' parables are not just cute stories he tells to amuse us. Jesus means serious business when he teaches through them. They concern matters of eternal life and eternal death. And this is why the next point is so important to us too. And that point is is that we need to share the precious treasures of the kingdom. And Jesus talks about this in our next section. If you'll look at verses 51 through 52. Matthew writes, Have you understood all these things? It's Jesus saying that. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So Jesus says, have you understood all these things? Right? Okay, guys, we finished another section of teaching here, and you've had to come to ask me a couple times for some clarification. So before, you know, we get going here, you know, you got all this? You have any questions? You get it? And the disciples say, yeah, yeah, we got no questions, Jesus. We got it. We, we understand it. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's laughable, right? You read that and you just want to laugh because you're thinking down the line, you know, all the knucklehead things that these same disciples are going to do and say in the coming chapters, right? I mean, first, for one example, you have Peter, who right after confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, right? When Jesus says he has to die, Peter rebukes him and says, no, 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 Jesus, you don't have to die at Jerusalem. You don't know know what you're talking about, right? And then, who could forget, later on, we have James and John who so courageously enlist their mother (laughs) to make a request to Jesus that one of them sit on his right hand and one of them sit on his left hand. And you're just scratching your head, you know, when they say, yeah, yeah, we, 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 we get it, Jesus, Right? I mean, you want to say, really? You you really understand? Because I don't know. See, but the thing is, is that Jesus knows that just like us, their understanding is imperfect, right? And he knows that, that they may not understand everything completely, but that they believe what they do understand. Right? And in light of that, he charges them to share the kingdom treasures that they do understand. He essentially tells them that they are to be the scribes of the kingdom. Now, the scribes in Jesus' day were like the scholars and the experts of the law, right? And their role was to interpret and to teach others about uh, the law. But Jesus calls the disciples to be kingdom scribes, 
These are scribes who not only grasped you know, the principles of the kingdom in their, in their heads, but whose hearts and lives have also been, been captured and changed by Jesus' teaching. They're ones who then seek to teach others these same things. And Jesus tells them that as kingdom scribes, they are to be like the master of a house who brings out new and old treasures. Now, there's a lot of discussion about this passage. Who is the master of the house? What does he represent? Why is he bringing out his treasures? What are they? Uh, we could you know, spend a lot of time on that, but let's just look at the main point here. Because Jesus seems to be making the point that rather than doing away with the old teachings, his new teachings, right, build upon them as the foundation. In other words, the old teachings have prepared the way for Jesus' teachings, and Jesus' teachings are the key to understanding the old ones. Now, here's a couple of applications for us here. The first one is, you can't ignore the Old Testament, okay? And we all struggle with this, right? I mean, if I were to take a poll right now, how many of you this morning did your devotional in Haggai? I would say I probably wouldn't have too many hands go up, right? No, you're probably in Romans or Philippians or John, right? The book of John, of course. Or how many times have you wrestled with really trying not to see God as having this kind of split personality, right? The angry, vengeful God of the Old Testament, and he's the compassionate, loving God. In the New Testament, we all wrestle with those things, right? But, but the fact is, is that the Bible is all one book, and it's all one book because it's the same eternal plan of redemption which is unfolding from Genesis through Revelation, because it's the same sovereign, unstoppable God that is fulfilling that plan of redemption. It's all the same story, and the hero is always Jesus. It's all the Word of God. And so we are called to bring out both the old and the new treasures, because without the Old Testament, what foundation does Jesus have for his claims and his work on the cross, right? And without Jesus' coming, the Old Testament is just a tragic depressing, unfinished story. So that's the first application. It's all the Word of God. It's all important. And the second application is simply this, that we're called to be kingdom scribes. I mean, we're all called to share our kingdom treasures with others. I mean, the Great Commission, as we call it, is coming in chapter 28, and it applies to all of us, right? Not just the 12, the 12 apostles, not just the small group of disciples, all of us. We're all called to go out into the world and make disciples by teaching them everything, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. You know, we don't keep our kingdom treasures locked up in our storeroom. We bring it out for others to learn about the kingdom in the hope that, that they will also become kingdom citizens with us, right? Now we do that, of course, knowing that even though we have good intentions in sharing our kingdom treasures, it doesn't mean that everyone will want them, right? I mean, Jesus makes it plain that not everyone will recognize the worth of the kingdom, and not everyone will accept him as their king. In fact, some will even resist to the point of being outright hostile when we try and share our kingdom treasure with them. So in this last section, we see that exact thing happen to Jesus himself, right? 
So this leads us to our next point, our last one, which is we need to expect painful rejection for the kingdom. You're excited about this one, aren't you? I can tell. Let's look at verses 53 through 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus finishes teaching parables and he decides to return to his hometown of Nazareth. And we find that he... Uh, it's teaching in the synagogue, right? Which shouldn't surprise us because, you know, it was common for synagogue officials to ask a visiting rabbi or teacher to teach in the synagogue. And, I mean, let's face it, Jesus is kind of a local celebrity now, right? So I'm sure they even more so wanted to hear what the hometown boy had to say. So he's teaching in the synagogue, and we learn that they were astonished by his wisdom and his mighty Works Now, whether they had heard about his miracle someplace else or whether he had done some miracles at that point, we're not sure. But whatever the case, they're astonished. But what we see is that this astonishment starts to bud into contempt. As they fire off a bunch of questions, and all these questions have the underlying attitude of, who does this guy think he is? I mean, it starts off with, where did this man get this wisdom and miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Grammatically, okay, in the Greek, that, that's already showing contempt. They, they know who this is. They know who Jesus is. They know his name. This man? Isn't this the carpenter's son? It's already starting. But isn't this the carpenter's son? I mean, this guy's not from a family of priests or rabbis. I mean, don't we know his mother? Don't we know his brothers? Aren't his sisters here? I mean, we know his family, okay? He's a villager just like us. Where did this man get these things? I mean, who does he think he is passing himself off as a, as a rabbi, a teacher, a healer, a prophet of God? And Matthew tells us that they took offense at Jesus. They're astonished as the king and his kingdom are staring them right in the face, yet they completely reject him, his message, and his kingdom. So Jesus responds with a statement of fact and a warning. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own household. And we learn that Jesus didn't do many miracles there. Mark says he healed a few people because of their unbelief. It's not because their unbelief made him unable to do miracles. There are plenty of times when Jesus does miracles around people who don't believe in him. What's being conveyed there is that Jesus chooses not to do miracles to let them sit in the consequences of their unbelief. Now, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about here. 
but I'm going to stick with one main point. And that, that is consider who the people of Nazareth are really rejecting here. I mean, he wasn't just the carpenter's son. He was God's only son. He was divine wisdom incarnate, the supreme and final prophet. He was God in the flesh who would just work a miracle at will because it was his creation and he had dominion over it. This is the one whom they rejected. And beloved, here's the question, okay? If the king himself was rejected and treated with contempt, why should we think that as his loyal subjects, we'll escape that. I mean, Jesus says in John 15, after telling his disciples that the world hates them, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. There's a little promise we don't like to have in our promise books, right? And Paul bluntly states it again in 2 Timothy 3. He says, Indeed, all who, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. You know, this morning we prayed for the persecuted church. And we were reminded of of the things that millions of Christians around the world endure for the sake of the name of Jesus. And it reminds us that there are so many Christians around the world that get this persecution stuff because they live it on a regular basis. But we have no category for this, really. Because we live in the country that we do because of the freedom and the safety and the security that we enjoy and their blessings. But at the same time, we need to see that rather than to be surprised or even confused when people revile us and reject us, that we should embrace it as the norm for us being Christians and not the exception. I mean, we should expect to be painfully rejected and persecuted for the kingdom. And we should even pray that like so many other Christians around the world, that we may even come to a place of even seeing that persecution as a blessing. I mean, we just, we just heard this passage a few, you know, the beginning of the service as well. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is is great in heaven. Do we really believe that possessing the kingdom is worth any price? Even if it means paying the ultimate price in this, in this life. You know, if, if America as we know it ceases to be the place of freedom and safety and security that it is today, what value would you place on being a follower of King Jesus? You know, we were watching ABC Nightly News about a week or so ago. Well, that's not entirely true. Christine was watching it. I was playing uh, Candy Crush on the iPad, and I was listening to it. <laughs> but um, there was a segment 
called America Strong, which captured my attention. It was about this man called John Shear. And John Shear is a guy who has worked as a guard at the Santa Anita Park Racetrack in California for 51 years. And two years ago, when he was 90, that's right, 90 years old, he was keeping his normal watch at the racetrack, holding a rope across one of the gaps in the fence because people were coming in, racing fans were coming in to watch the horses kind of come in and, and take their places. All of a sudden, there was a shout that a horse was on the loose. And, and you know, being faithful to his job, John Shear shouted to everyone to clear the way, right? And that's when he saw her. That's when he saw the little girl standing there, five-year-old Roxy Key. And without thinking twice, he jumped in front of her, shielding her from the horse that was barreling right towards them. And that horse, which was running full speed, hit both of them, knocking them both to the ground. And as John Shear lay on the ground hemorrhaging, little Roxy got up, rattled, but without a scratch. In critical condition, Shear would be in the hospital for seven weeks, and then he would later say this, I knew I was going to get hit. I thought there was a possibility I was going to die, but you, can't, you cannot stop and think, should I or shouldn't I? There is a five-year-old girl. I'm 90 years old. I have had a life. She hasn't had a life. You've got to save that life. Beloved, this is just such an amazing picture of Jesus and the gospel to me. You see, there I was, standing defenseless and helpless and weak as the horse of God's justice and wrath was barreling towards me, right? And Jesus says, not... You know, I'm 90 years old. He says, I am the eternal Son of God. And Tom is dead in his sins. And he has never experienced true life, but only death. And I have given my life. I am the bread of life. And I came to save his life. And he stood between me and that galloping divine horse of judgment, allowing himself to be nailed on the cross. And he hung there hemorrhaging. And that's where he died so that I could get up and stand before the throne of a holy, holy, holy God without a scratch of judgment, accusation, or blame. Paul summarizes this just so well in Romans 5 when he says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one, Someone might dare even to die, but God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this is a glorious irony of the gospel of the kingdom, that the king came and died for those who were worthless, so that those who were worthless might inherit him who was priced, who is priceless. Is there any earthly treasure that compares to him? You know, I, I don't know what keeps you from fully possessing the treasure of Jesus in his kingdom this morning. Whatever it is, is it worth it? Let's pray.
Father, I pray. I pray, first of all, that there are those in this room who do not know your son Jesus, that right now, you would, even now, you'd be drawing them and that you would be calling them and that this day they would, they would experience salvation found in Christ. And Father, I pray for us, for those of us who are Christians, and I pray you would stir our hearts to love your Son more deeply and more fervently than we do now. And Father, give us courage to go out and share about your Son and the treasure of the kingdom fearlessly, no matter what may come our way for doing so. I pray these things, and I know that you are listening because I know why I have access to your throne room, and it's for one reason, because the blood of Jesus Christ covers me. And because of that, I know that we are heard right now. And it's in his name I pray, the name of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this wasn't intended, but it turns out that you're getting a triple shot of Philippians 3 this morning, because that's our benediction. So this is my prayer for us, is that like Paul we could earnestly confess the same thing. So hear the benediction from Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Beloved brothers and sisters, go in peace.